Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Isaiah. We are taking a quick break from Acts today. Uh, we've got just two, two sermons left in the book of Acts. I wanted to, I thought about keeping going through it to finish it by the end of the year, but we're going to uh, take a quick break and look together the, at Isaiah chapter 9. If you are using the, the blue ESV Bibles that you can find out there in the seatbacks, you can find our text on page 573. We're in Isaiah 9, going to be looking at the first seven verses, and the title of our sermon is, A Child is Born. And the key words for our worshipers and training are light, uh, promise, and kingdom. I think. Light, God, and kingdom, that is. I can never get those right. I've, I put them in there, and then I always forget. Every week I'm telling Christina, nope, never mind, I changed them. So whatever, whatever words you want to put down really is fine with me. But. So we're in Isaiah 9, and I have a question for you as we get into it. Do you know that we live in an enchanted world? Now, I don't mean a make-believe world, one of little myths and fairy tales. I mean we live in a world that is so astoundingly spiritual and bear with me here, dare we say magical, that it puts those stories, as enjoyable as they may be, to shame. But it also helps us to understand them. For instance, what if I were to say to you that over 2,000 years ago, a young woman named Mary, who lived on the other side of the world from where we are now, She was not married, she had never known a a man, yet she conceived and bore a son through the supernatural work of God Almighty. What's more, this child born to this woman, born of woman, was in fact very God of very God, very man of very man. Do we appreciate that story. Do we appreciate what we are saying here? God became man. The God who spoke the world into existence, who through the power of that same voice upholds the universe day in and day out, that God became like us in Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews tells us he he became like us in every respect so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And deliver us from slavery to sin and death. And that he might be a sympathetic high priest. The God who inhabits eternity. For whom and by whom all things exist. He made his home with the lowly. That he might bring many sons to glory. It's important that we not be swept away by the commercialization of the Christmas season. That's true. It's also true that Christmas time is a a great opportunity to reflect upon the fact that God became man in order to bring redemption to the world as the hymn that we sang earlier says, as far as the curse is found. 
whatever superficial or even idolatrous reasons that might fill the hearts of others around this time of year, Christians have a remarkable reason for thick, full, and robust joy. But it's not as though this means that everything is as it should be. That it, at least yet, is as it should be. Yes, God came into the world to conquer death, but death has not been completely extinguished. We still feel the sting of death when we lose a loved one. We feel death's sting in the broken and pain-filled world in which we live until we one day will die. But thanks be to God that while the Bible is a triumphant book, it is not a triumphalistic book. I don't know if that's a word or not. I might have made it up, but I think you know what I mean. The Bible is not a message of you're not perfect, but that's okay, so just cheer up. That sentence is a cheap one. At its very best, it is an ugly, horribly distorted knockoff of a true and significant thread of the Bible's message. One that says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Our passage this morning, Isaiah 9, is one of those well-known threads of triumph that God has woven through the tapestry of His Word. It's a passage full of hope and glory, but the glory of Isaiah 9. For us to get the glory, to get to the glory of Isaiah 9, we have to walk through Isaiah 8 for a minute, or really Isaiah 1 through 8. Isaiah 8 focuses on judgment for sin pretty hard. If you were to read the preceding chapters, 1 through 7, you'd find God's people enveloped in superstitions as well as little stitions. You'd find them involved in materialism, idolatry, arrogance, a lack of godly leadership, social disintegration, sensuality, alcoholism, and even child sacrifice. So when you get to Isaiah 8, we shouldn't be surprised to find a picture of utter brokenness. Isaiah 8 speaks of shattered peoples, futile plans, snares, false teaching, distress, hunger, blasphemy, anguish, and to cap it all off, thick, impenetrable darkness. But Isaiah 8 also calls upon Israel to wait patiently for Emmanuel, for God with us in the midst of this darkness. And it is in that context of waiting that we come to Isaiah 9. In the midst of this darkness, a light shines forth. 9-1. But there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. Let's face it. The bleak, despairing end of Isaiah 8, and they will be thrust into thick darkness... It brings to, to an end the long and anguished descent of Isaiah 1 through 7. That anguish seems to echo around every corner in Western culture today. We're living in dark times. 
much like the ones that Israel had brought upon itself. But we ought not to be depressed or despairing over the darkness because as we'll see, the hope of this passage is not just for the nation of of Israel, the physical offspring of Abraham, but it's for the world. It's for us. And so it's worth asking the question, how do we get in on the hope of Isaiah 9-1? That there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. I'm glad you asked. If you If we were to sum up the message of these verses, and I want to do that, and then I'm going to read them and outline them, and then we'll get to work on them. This is what we'd say in the in the summary, summary statement of Isaiah 9, 1 through uh, through 7. God promises to establish his kingdom on earth, bringing light, freedom, and peace through his forever king who would conquer every dark, enslaved, and chaotic corner of the world. Here's that sentence again. God promises to establish his kingdom on earth, bringing light, freedom, and peace through his forever king, who would conquer every dark, enslaved, and chaotic corner of the world. Let's read these verses together then. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, had, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. So there are going to be three parts to this sermon. First, we need to examine the text before us in all seven verses. Second, we need to clear up a possible misunderstanding that might arise for us in applying these verses. And third, we need to make some closing application by way of a twofold invitation. So three words that could sum up All three points would be examination, clarification, and invitation. Let's get started with the first, the examination. What we see in these verses is a threefold promise. God promises light to a darkened world, freedom to an oppressed world, and peace to a chaotic world. 
We see that in verses 1 to 3, light and darkness. 4 and 5, freedom from oppression. And verses 6 and 7, peace in the midst of chaos. Look with me in the first place at verses 1 to 3. Isaiah says that there will be no more gloom. No gloom for her who was in anguish. He speaks of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were, these were two tribes of, of Israel. They were the first to go in the Assyrian invasion of 722. Yahweh promises to overcome their contempt and make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of, of the nations. And so both in one fell swoop, uh, Isaiah calls our attention both to a restorative hope for Judah and Israel for the people of God, and also as he mentions the nations, we see that this promise is to reach beyond their borders. And he goes on in verse 2 to describe the glory of this coming light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they, the light shines upon them who previously had sat in darkness. And he says this light would bring about an increase of joy. Even as the nation itself grows. And he describes this joy with two images. Harvest time and a victorious end of war. Now I'm neither a farmer nor a soldier, but I love to eat and I love to win. And so, if you're anything like me, I trust that the metaphors, the images here are not lost on you. The increase of joy at harvest time is a great thing. Uh, you've worked hard all season, sowing and sowing, and now it's time to reap the joy of dividing the spoil, of having been triumphant in battle. You haven't been killed or enslaved, and so there's great joy. And this is what Isaiah wants us here to to see and to understand, to expect. There is a great joy coming for those who wait on the Lord. And it's summed up in this image of light shining in the darkness. But he goes on in verses 4 and 5, he says that there is a secession of oppression that is coming. And really, all of these verses, they just build on this promise and this image of light in darkness. It's filling out the picture of this joy that comes from being able to see. Because the light does not merely illumine the path, it banishes the evil one. It banishes that which is wrong. The Lord promises here that the yoke of burden, the staff for the shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, they would be broken. Beginning... This is verse 4. But he says, he makes a reference to the day of Midian. Maybe you don't know what that is. In Judges 7, 19-25, we read of the Lord's miraculous overthrow of the Midianites through Gideon in the 300. God continued to whittle the army down. No, I don't want that many. I don't want that many. I don't. 300, that's enough to take on uh, all of the, the Midianites. And so this reference to Midian says, as God did there, God would miraculously break the bonds of the oppressor. 
God promises light and freedom. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment was to be rolled that was rolled in blood. They were to be dispensed with, done away with. They would be burned as fuel for fire. And one of my favorite uh, songs that we sing around Christmas time, Oh Holy Night. Consider this verse. Truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break, for the slave is our brother, and in His name all oppression shall cease. So God promises light and He promises freedom. Let me see in verses 6 and 7, we see the birth of a son, of a child who would bring about these great blessings of light and freedom and now peace. Consider the names given to this son. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Calling the son a, a, a counselor, a wonderful counselor, fundamentally declares that this son would be endowed with supernatural wisdom. He's also said to be the mighty God. This, of course, not only ascribes deity to the child, but focuses particularly on his strength. He will be wise and he will be strong. He will also be the people's eternal head. Father here, of course, is not meant to be, uh, it's not introduced as a way of confusing the Godhead. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. This is what you might call poetic language used to describe this child further as a ruler and a leader. That's what a father is. A father provides for, protects, and leads his family. So will this Son do for his family, and he will do so everlastingly. And he's also called the Prince of Peace. He would not only be a wise, strong, and eternal ruler, but his rule will be characterized fundamentally by peace. On each side of the proclamation of these names, then, Isaiah speaks of the enduring and conquering nature of this son's rule. He, he introduces it in the line, the sort of the middle of verse 6, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then in verse 7, he picks up with that thought. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This son of David, he goes on to say, would establish and uphold David's kingdom. David, of course, the second king of God's people in Israel. And it was to David that God promised an everlasting throne, a son to always sit on his throne. And so David would uh, have his throne established by this son who would reign in justice and righteousness forever. And then Isaiah seals it with these words, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It cannot fail, in other words. So that's the text the people of God 
in the Old Testament and the world at large walk in darkness, suffer under oppression from enemies, enemies without and within, and struggle in the chaos of a sin-wracked world. And yet, God renews His promise here that He first made way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. That there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He renews that promise here that He made then and repeatedly made throughout the Old Testament that there would be a Son who would come to overcome the brokenness of the world. And so, the people are called to, to, to wait. To wait in hope. But that brings us to a second thing, and that, that's a potential misunderstanding that may rise when we come to a passage like this. Because the question, inevitably, is, well, when is this to happen? When does this light shine? When does this freedom come? When is this peace established? What we see in Luke 1, the the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her child would be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. While this isn't a direct quotation of Isaiah 9, exactly, it certainly stands, Isaiah 9 certainly stands, as the background to these words about the birth of Jesus. Matthew, in his gospel, applies this passage explicitly to the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 4, we learn that when Jesus heard of John the Baptist's arrest, he moved to the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, and he began preaching there. So that, as Matthew says, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He then quotes Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. The writers of the New Testament help us to view passages like this in the Old Testament properly. In other words, we need to recognize that the birth, the ministry, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, they're all one multi-layered event that fulfills God's promises in the Old Testament to renew the world and bring it into the glory that Adam failed to secure in the garden all those years ago. You see, the Jews seem to misunderstand passages like this one in a significant way. In John 12, for instance, Jesus foretells his pending death, and the crowd, uh, really just wanting to find some space between Jesus and the Christ of the Old Testament, um, they asked him, we have it, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you then say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now again, they're not quoting any particular passage of the Old Testament, either the law or the prophets, but they seem to have Isaiah 9 in mind, perhaps Psalm 110 or Psalm 89, because After all, Isaiah 9 does expect a son from God who would come and establish an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom who would never be brought to an end. That would never stop increasing. So the Messiah, to come and 
die did not make a drop of sense to the Jews of Jesus' day, by and large. And yet, the Old Testament certainly anticipated, and the New Testament makes explicitly clear, as we've seen, as we've worked through the book of Acts, that while the Messiah would inaugurate God's kingdom on earth at His coming, it was not to be through militaristic conquest and overthrow of kingdoms of earth at the edge of a sword. Rather, it was through His death and resurrection and then the unrelenting striving of His people to proclaim the message of a crucified, risen, and now reigning and ruling Savior. It was through that that He would bring about this promised peace in the world. And yet, even with all of that laid out for us, it may still be easy for us to make the mistake of thinking that something has gone amiss. Right? We look around at our world, we look around at a rapidly deteriorating moral, economic, and communal fabric of our society, and we might ask, is Christ's kingdom really increasing? The short answer is, yeah. Calvin is helpful for us here. He says this, Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it may appear as if it were about to perish at every moment, yet God not only protects and defends it, but also extends its boundaries far and wide, and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. He goes on, We ought firmly to believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith when we learn that amidst the mad outcry and violent attacks of enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God. So that, through the whole, so that though the whole world should oppose and resist, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge of its stability from the present appearance of things, but from the promise which assures us of its continuance and constant increase. In other words, while kingdoms rise and fall, and this happens everywhere, all over the world, throughout all history, kingdoms rise and fall, nevertheless, the growth of Christ's kingdom though often slow and even imperceptible without the well-trained eye of faith, we must not hesitate to declare that the kingdom of our Christ continues to bring light and life into this darkened world. So that's the misunderstanding. This passage is still coming true. Still true, even with the turmoil in which our nation daily seems to be increasingly finding itself. So let's close with a twofold invitation. First, to each and every one of you, I ask, has the light shined on you? Are you walking in the light? Or are you walking in 
the dark. Whether this is your first time in church in 20 years or your 200th time in church this year, ask yourself the question, am I in the light? Don't ask yourself if you are light adjacent, not neighbors with a good Christian or the parent or child of a good Christian, not the employer or employee of a good Christian who's walking in the light. Are you a Christian? Are you walking in the light? Have you looked to this Prince of Peace and received his peace? Because while we do await the inevitable throw of tyranny in the world, there is a peace that we can have from our sin that we need now, that Christ offers to us now. This doesn't mean that you will never struggle with sin or struggle with assurance or feel a lack of peace, but he offers it to you now. And so the question, have you looked for this peace bringer? Have you looked to the bringer of the light? Jesus says to the Jews who reject him in John 12, they said, Christ remains forever. Who are you to say that uh, he's to be lifted up and crucified? Jesus says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, our Lord says, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks a similar word against that same generation. He says this in John 3, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus says, John 8, I am the light of the world. And so there's a light that has dawned and is shining in the dark places. But what you do with the light is immeasurably important. Do you run to the light or do you run from the light? Jesus' audience, for the most part, rejected the light. And about 40 years after these words, the Jewish faith was brought to an irretrievable end. So shall it be for all who have not kissed the Son. So, for each and every one of us, the question is this. Will we, will I, will you be counted among those who perish in the way? Or will I be counted among those who turn in faith to the light bringer to be made a son or a daughter of the light? So that's one invitation. Come to the light. The second would be for the rest of us who are in the light now. Are you weary and tempted to doubt that God is keeping His promises? Are you beyond fed up with the present state of things in our nation or our county or in your family or in your own heart? 
You know, individuals and families and nations that reject God will eventually fall. Our nation, full of individuals and families, has been rejecting God for a long time. How much longer do we have until the judgment of God, which admittedly we see some of it already, but how much longer before it sweeps over us and completely darkens this entire place? Because while Christ's kingdom, His church, will increase and will have a fruitful effect in the world around them, no one particular nation is promised this enduring peace and existence. So what will become of America? What will become of the Western world at large? Well, we don't know. But we know that God is faithful to this promise, and so there's, there's still reason to have hope. We're here today, gathered in the name of Christ. And unlike some people, we get to do this quite freely. So let us rejoice and have hope. Because how is it that the Son sustains and expands His kingdom in the world? Is it not through the witness in the lives of His people? Christianity is not a losing game. The war has been decisively won. But it takes time to mop up the battles and skirmishes as the news spreads. The war has been won, and so we have to let everybody know. And so there's hope. And so this Christmas, and next Christmas, and every Christmas, and every day in between, let us rejoice that Christ is King. And let us remember His mission that He fulfilled. And then the commission that He gave to His church to take His world-changing gospel into every nook and cranny of our lives and then share it with others, teaching them to take the gospel into every nook and cranny of their lives so that they can teach others to take the gospel into every nook and cranny of their lives. You get the point. So on and so forth forevermore, the gospel and the kingdom of our Christ continues to expand, to be pushed into every corner of this world, our hearts included and most central in that, and in so doing, we can trust that our King will bring His inevitable and unconquerable light, freedom, and peace on earth. Amen.